Mormon relates the story of Nephi praying on his tower to bring home to us the lessons of pride, weakness, and the depravity of man. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. grateful to welcome you again to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast, and I want to begin today's episode by talking about a special episode we did a few weeks ago called Chiasmus in the Book of Mormon featuring Mike Madsen. So I remind you all of this episode, it's wonderful. Uh, You can find it by going on YouTube and searching for Gospel Doctrine Chiasmus, and this, this is an episode in which we really go into depth about the artistry, the poetry that exists in the writing of the Book of Mormon, the composition of some of the more complicated poetic sermons that exist in the Book of Mormon passages that we mentioned. So if you haven't yet, definitely make sure and go check that out. Also, as always, if you have a question about this week's lesson, the scriptures that we'll cover, or any question that requires an answer from the scriptures, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Speaking of gospeltoctrine.com, visit our website for an episode on a web page on each of our episodes. You can find there a transcript provided voluntarily by Paul Castro, who lives in Australia. We're grateful to him for that. And also PDF copies of my notes that I prepare before I record each episode. Also on our website, there's a link to donate to the podcast. You'll see a page describing the different means you can use to donate. And I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who has taken that opportunity up until this point. I've been truly stunned and humbled by your generosity. And I want you to know it enabled me to buy some software that we can now use to make faster transcripts and some other upgrades to the program. So thank you very much for that. If you keep them coming, I'll keep the upgrades coming. And uh, with that, let's begin this week's episode. The scriptures we'll cover today are Helaman chapters 7 through 12, and it's titled simply, Remember the Lord. Now, you may remember last time, Nephi, the son of Helaman, and his brother Lehi, the two who had been taught by their father to remember that their names were examples to them and that they must build upon the rock of their Redeemer. These two had become missionaries. They'd traveled all throughout the lands of the Lamanites. You may also remember that the land of the Nephites had been split into two, called the land northward and the land southward. Now, the land southward was sort of a contested territory, having been totally conquered by the Lamanites, partially recovered by the Nephites, and then the remainder of it was recovered by the preaching of Nephi and Lehi. And so this land had changed possession, but the land northward had never changed possession. This is where the Nephites had fled, and the land northward had never been conquered by the Lamanites. So today's lesson begins with Nephi having returned from that land northward. So he and his brother had a ton of success. They had many miracles, and they encountered much wickedness and much righteousness as they traveled throughout the land southward and the land of the Lamanites, which was even further south than that. But then Nephi returned. He had all this success, and then he went to where the Nephites had been preserved, the land northward, where they'd never been conquered. 
And, th and now he has just returned, having had no success among those Nephites who had not been conquered. So that's the first interesting point that we can sort of store away for later pondering, which is these Nephites who had never been conquered were the ones among whom the prophet had the least success in his preaching. So that's a significant point right there. And we're going to get into some of the reasons why, one, one specific reason why. And uh, in fact, I think we'll skip right now just to save ourselves a bunch of confusion and time. I'm going to read from chapter 12, because th that is the chapter where Mormon sort of ties it all up at the end of today's lesson. And then as we're going throughout the lesson, we can remember that he's already sort of summed these things up for us. So the first point that uh, Mormon makes in Helaman chapter 12 is that in verse 2, at, at the very time when he doth prosper his people, Yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks and herds, and then he mentions a bunch of other earthly blessings that uh, the Lord might give people on earth, softening the hearts of their enemies that they should not declare wars against them. This is the time that they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample under the feet their hol the Holy One. Yea, and this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. So this is one of the answers why these Nephites in the land northward would not have been willing to listen to their prophet, because they haven't suffered enough. Isn't that interesting? So God, first of all, understand, put yourself in the position of God. I mean, it's very hard to do, but it's worthwhile, I think, a worthwhile exercise. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us those things that will not only make us happy, eternally, but also make us happy just today, the things in which we can derive pleasure and joy. Peace, for example, wealth, he wants to give us all of these things. But the problem for God is this very problem that is expressed here in verse 2. This verse is something you should remember the rest of the time we're reading the Book of Mormon, because God always wants to bless his people. And whenever they're righteous, he liberally does so, he quickly does so, and then they just as quickly forget him. And then in verse 3, we sort of have the, the opposite, the converse of this. Thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. So God doesn't want to curse us. He wants to bless us. But he has this contradiction. He has this conundrum that if he that if he blesses us, he's actually, if he blesses us in the short term, he's actually cursing us eternally because we will forget him. And if he curses us in the short term, he's blessing us eternally because then we'll remember. And that's the title of this week's lesson. If you read the Come Follow Me manual, the word remember is the most important word there. It talks about how a prophet's job is to get us to remember God. I have this note in my scriptures on verse 3 of Helaman chapter 12. Uh, the note is titled, Spiritual Death Versus Physical Death. I wrote, the, spirit, the Lord takes spiritual death so seriously that he's willing to make our lives miserable or even end them to avoid it. So that should tell you, spiritual death is far more serious a matter than physical death. And this lesson was brought home in the first third of the book of Alma when we read the account of the conversion of the anti-Nephite Lehi's and how they're willing to lay down their lives in order to avoid risking spiritual death. And many of them do, in fact, die. They're killed by their enemies. But the Book of Mormon records that we can joy in the way that they passed because they went rejoicing into the spiritual world. And of course, this is an important conclusion in its own right, but it also provides a clue to another question that's going to come up today, which is why does God allow people to suffer? So this verse 3 
is such an important clue to answering that question, because not only does God allow people to suffer because we have agency, we have moral agency, God has given it unto men and men and women to act and not be acted upon, and that's one answer why evil comes upon people is because of the choices of themselves or others. But the other answer is that God actually has to bring upon us, uh, I shouldn't say the other answer, one other answer is that God has to bring upon us chastening in order to help us remember him. Remembering him is actually so much more important than whether we're comfortable or not. Well, back to chapter 7. We're reading the story, the account of the prophet Nephi, and he has returned to the land southward, the land of Zarahemla. This land is now back under Nephite control, and so he's still in Nephite society, and, and he has a problem. He is lamenting the fact that Nephite society is corrupt in the same way that he decried in our last lesson. And if you remember, this is a very Old Testament way for prophet to show up, which is to cry repentance and say, you have forgotten, you, you the society, uh, not just you the people, you the individual to whom I'm talking at this moment, but you, everyone, the entire society to whom I'm speaking, you have societal sins. So these are important distinctions to remember. There are individual sins. Individual sins include theft and murder and adultery and lust and especially pride, which lies at the root of all of these individual sins. But societal sins are the ones that make repentance for those who would desire to repent even the more difficult. And it's the sins of society. Obviously, these two things go hand in hand, but it is the sins of society that makes a people ripe for destruction. So he describes them as, as lacking what we, what we called last time, kedusha and tzedakah, which is holiness and righteousness. Holiness is the willingness to take the things of God and hold them separate and apart. And righteousness is that state of communion that exists between people where they treat each other well, where the poor are taken care of, where there is justice, the laws are observed and administered equitably, what I've referred to in the past as right relationships. So Kedusha and Tzedakah were the two things that ancient Israelite prophets would most would be most likely to be talking about on any given day. And this is what Nephi is talking about. So he's he's noticing the lack of these two important aspects of any society, any godlike society. So in the latter part of our last lesson, everyone had been converted, or the, the more part of all the people had been converted. And now here early on in this lesson, he's once again finds himself in a wicked uh, society. It's because all of their leaders had been killed. One after the other, their chief judges had been assassinated. And it just took a couple of these uh, episodes for the entire people to realize that they didn't care about the truth anymore. Now, this is the first, actually, it's the second example of this kind of thing happening where the bulk of the people on both sides of this line that separates the land of Nephi from the land southward, the, the Nephites from the Lamanites, the bulk of the people on either side of that line have been converted, and then in a short time, they begin to be wicked again. This is going to happen again so many times before the coming of Christ in the book of Third Nephi that if you're like me, they will begin to blur together in your mind because they happen every few years. It seems like everyone is converted and then everyone is wicked. In this particular case, the Gadiantans have largely taken over control of the Nephite government. The, the Lamanites were willing to purge themselves of this evil, but the Nephites have not been willing to do that. So what does Nephi do? He gets on what's called a tower, and he prays near the gate of his garden, which is by the highway leading to the center place of, of Zarahemla which is presumably the largest city of the Nephites. 
So here he is, near the capital of all of Nephite civilization, near the very center of it. And the implication is that he's praying to God, and he wants to keep it private, but then people happen to overhear him. And as I read this story, I actually have a hard time believing that that's what was, what was really going on. I think that a man who goes into his garden, who's, which, and, he's, and he gets up on a tower, which is right by a road leading to the center of the largest city, and also prays in a voice that's loud enough to easily be overheard, I think he is doing that for effect. So in my opinion, Nephi's prayer is a sermon. He is, this is just an opinion, this is just a guess, but he is on this tower because he wants to be overheard. And anyway, whatever the case might be there, before too much time goes by, a multitude does in fact assemble. And he turns around and says, oh, why, why are you here? So that I can tell you about your iniquities? And what are those iniquities? Uh, one of the things that you'll notice in the first part of chapter 7, it talks about the fact that righteous Nephites are persecuted, be, not just persecuted, but be persecuted because of their righteousness. And the wicked are freed, are prospered because of their money and because of their power. Now, this is the very definition of a people who are ripening in iniquity. We've talked in the past about what it means to be, to be ripe in iniquity. But when a fruit is ripe, you pluck it off the tree. And when a people is ripe in iniquity, that's when God begins to think about, seriously consider sending down destructive forces upon them. One of the things that sort of fascinates me when reading the scriptures is that uh, the ripening in iniquity, can some, God can let it go on for so long sometimes, and other times he, he acts quickly to put a stop to it. So I don't understand what his timing is all about. Obviously, none of us do. But in this particular case, the righteous being targeted because of the righteousness, the wicked being prospered because of their wickedness, is a situation that God has to intervene in, and he sends Nephi to tell them. So Nephi spends the rest of chapter 7 explaining to them all of the penalties that will come upon them if they, if they continue to act in pride, to prize iniquity, to ignore God, and the specific penalty that is prescribed in this case is destruction of their entire civilization. They'll be conquered by the Lamanites. And one of the chief targets of his diatribe are, that, are the members of the government, those people who are charged with administering the laws, with providing justice, with increasing the holiness of the people. He's saying those are the people who are letting us down. And because they're letting us down, you're all allowing yourselves to be drawn into their iniquity. And it is those people who are the most offended. And unfortunately for Nephi, they're the ones who have the power to act against him. This is very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He was speaking against the iniquity of those in power. And because they wanted to hold on to their power, and also because they didn't want to change, they hated Nephi for exactly the same reason that the Pharisees hated Jesus. Their fears of his words on the one hand, and his popularity on the other, perfectly mirror the fears of the Pharisees with Jesus. So they're afraid to act against Nephi because the people seem to be listening to him. They're saying, no, wait a minute. Now, I know that you are offended by what he said, but he has perfectly detailed my own sins. And, and then I can presume by extension, everyone else, this is the average man listening to the prophet speaking, thinking this. I know that he's talked clearly of my own sins, and so I can guess that he's a prophet, and so I don't want you to act against him right now. I want to hear more of what he has to say. This fear holds these government officials in check in the same way that the Pharisees were held in check uh, from acting against Jesus in Jerusalem.
And one thing that seems obvious is that we don't have all the words of Nephi because it says one of the things that these people say to the judges is, he's spoken clearly of our secret evils. And we don't really have a record of Nephi doing that. We don't know exactly what these secret evils are, what the hidden things that Nephi has brought to light. But it does bring to my mind uh, the question or the, the principle Uh, The question, what is a prophet, and the principle of what a prophet actually is. One of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, in this lesson is, what is the role of a prophet? Now, Nephi is about to make some predictions. He's about to say things that will come to pass. And the word prophecy actually means that, talking about the future. So a lot of times people get the mistaken impression that that's what a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who can talk about the future and what they say will actually happen. Now, that is the hallmark one hallmark of, the, of a prophet, but that is not actually the definition of a prophet. A prophet, according to the scriptures in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon, a prophet is somebody who is simply a mouthpiece of God and nothing else. So if God wa- wants a prophet to speak about the future, then he will. If God wants a, a prophet to speak about the past, then he will. Uh, one of the jobs of a prophet is to bring hidden things to light. And those hidden things might be in the future and they might be in the present. So what Nephi has just done is reveal hidden things that are going on in the present, but that people would prefer to keep hidden. And now what he's about to do is to reveal things that will come to pass. And in the coming chapters, we'll have even more examples, all all with the same prophet Nephi, the son of Helaman. We'll have more examples of exactly what is the role of a prophet. But I'm reminded of two Old Testament prophets as I read these chapters. The first is Ezekiel. Now, you may or may not remember that Ezekiel was the prophet in the exiled Jews that lived in Babylon. And he spent years of his life, literally years, testifying to the Jews in Babylon who had already been, quote-unquote, destroyed. So he he was testifying to them of their iniquity. And he did it using what we we would only call today a street theater. He would go out into the street and dress up in a particular way in which the Lord would, would tell him. And he would eat strange food, and he would use object lessons to get across his point in very symbolic ways. And that, and this could go on for months. Uh, I, Ezekiel was, at one point was called upon to, to be only on one side of his body for months at a time. And people would every day be able to see him doing this in the street. So that was one of the roles of a prophet. And it was repeated day after day so that the Jews could get the point. They could see the same thing happening day after day and realize that Ezekiel really means what he says. The other prophet is Elijah. So Elijah went before, he he lived in a similar time period. He lived in the time of the great wickedness of the northern kings of the kingdom of Israel. The, The king Ahab is described as offending God more than all the kings that came before him. And so we'll draw some more parallels between Elijah and Nephi in just a chapter or two. Nephi himself draws parallels between himself and other Old Testament and Book of Mormon prophets. So he testifies of the role of prophets in general here in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, the the chief judges are seeming to appeal to the people. How can he know of these things that that are coming to pass? How can he know of secret evils that are hidden from all of our view? He's lying. He's making all this stuff up. He's not really a prophet. Nephi's response is to say, how could, if you all believe the scriptures, I know that you do, we're part of a society that believes in the scriptures, and because you believe in the scriptures, you believe that there was a man named Moses who stretched forth his hand and and parted the Red Sea. The Israelites walked through on dry ground, 
and the armies of the Egyptians were drowned according to his word. So if, he, if a man could do that, why couldn't a man stand here and tell you of your iniquities? If you believe in prophets, then what justification can you have for saying that I'm not one? And incidentally, this is the question that any denier of living prophets has to answer. Uh, I remember a time on my mission. I had a particular encounter on my mission. And my, <laughs> my companion and I uh, sort of naively were tracting in the area of a, an evan- evangelical church. And this was actually in Africa, the African country of Cape Verde. And we happened to knock on, I didn't realize that this church t- took up an entire city block. I, I was knocking on a big long wall. It had a door in it. And I didn't think because of the fact that it was attached to the same wall if you followed it around a few corners. Uh, you'd come to the church. So we knocked on this wall, and we were actually knocking on the pastor's home. So we find ourselves in this pastor's home. He lives in the church, and he's he's talking to us about the Book of Mormon. So we're bearing testimony of the Book of Mormon. He, of course, already has one. And he shows me the scripture in the New Testament that says, if any man, this is from the, uh, one of the epistles of Paul, he says, if any man come to you bearing a new gospel other than the gospel we have preached, Let him be anathema, which means poison, right? Let him be accursed. And I think of all the conversations that I had with people on my mission, that's the one I've replayed the most in my head because I wish I knew then the things that I've studied since about how to respond to that question. So the the question is really a question of, can a living prophet still exist if Paul, people like Paul and Moses and John the Revelator said that you shall not add to my words? Um, there are very good responses to all of that. But what there isn't a good response to is the question of, if Moses could do those things, why can't someone do them today? If someone were holy today, and if God, and if you're a favorite of the Lord, why would not God bless him with the same power? There is no answer to it because God does, in fact, call prophets today and bless them with the same power. The only reason he wouldn't is because of apostasy among people. Nephi makes that point abundantly clear, talking about Old Testament prophets from Moses through Abraham, through Zenos, Zenic, and Ezeus. These are three prophets that we don't have in our modern scriptures. But he also mentions Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Nephi performs a very interesting rhetorical trick, which is to say, look at all these prophets and look at the prophecies that they made, and they've all come to pass. Now, doesn't that prove that those were real prophets? And the implication is that he's equating himself with all of these prophets, but the, his audience, they don't understand his detractors. They don't understand, understand what he's doing clearly enough to attack his argument on those grounds. They're stuck with the prospect of having to attack the existence of prophets in general. And there, there's no way they can get the people on board with that. And so he, he really does defeat them with his arguments. Then he goes into talking about Book of Mormon prophets in verses 22 and 23 as well. So he says, Lehi, Nephi, did they, did they leave Jerusalem for no reason or was it actually destroyed? Don't we have among us the descendants of Mulek? We have witness, we have witness testimony through their ancestors. We know that Jerusalem was destroyed. And then in case there are any doubters who believe in prophets in general, but don't believe that Nephi is one of them, he says, look, now I'm going to give you a sign. This is your stereotypical idea of what prophets are? Okay, fine. I'm going to give you a sign. Our chief judge was just murdered. And if you run and hurry, you will still, you will see his body. And in chapter nine, then we have five witnesses who go. And it's interesting, it's, it's significant that these five men are skeptics. 
So as they run, they're saying to themselves, well, we don't believe that Nephi is a prophet. We don't think we're going to find anything like what he just said that we'll find. But if we do, then we will believe. And this is important because in my experience, the vast majority of the time in which God works a miracle in my life, he doesn't accompany it with any sort of fanfare. I don't have a spiritual witness that what has just happened has been God intervening in my life. I remember uh, last year I was on a river trip and I brought my camera with me. I brought a GoPro and this GoPro had a battery that was irreplaceable on the trip. I was It was a 16-day river trip down the Colorado River. And at one point, I lost the battery. The battery fell into the bottom of a boat. This boat had everything in it. There was no way we were going to be able to pull out of all, the, all of the chests and life jackets and supplies for two weeks worth of, of rowing uh, in order to find one simple battery. And so the, you know, I, I felt like this battery was lost for the rest of the trip and my camera was going to be of no use to me. And so I said a prayer. And uh, we'd looked everywhere. We looked everywhere we could think to look. We turned over everything. We, we put our hands as deep under the stuff as they could go. But these, these rafts that you travel on rivers on are self-bailing. And so they have holes in the, in the sides of them so that water can get in and out. And the battery was smaller than one of those holes. So the, the chance was, the extreme likelihood was, that this battery had simply fallen to the bottom of the boat and found its way through one of these holes. So after we'd looked everywhere, uh, we took a moment, and I, I felt kind of silly. I was a little embarrassed to suggest that we say a prayer. I wish I hadn't been, but I was. So I said, I, but I had the Spirit speak to me, and it said, if you will say a prayer out loud, then see what happens. And I didn't want to fail to listen to something like that and not have the courage. So I stopped, and I said, I feel like we should say a prayer. And so the people who were with me, uh, they said, okay, and I said a prayer out loud. It was a short prayer. And I opened my eyes, and th all three of us, there were three of us sitting there, and there was one blank area of floor on the raft where there was nothing on it. It's where you put your feet when you rode. And as soon as we opened our eyes, all three of us were looking at the battery right there in the middle of that area where your feet would go, in the one place where we'd, we would be sure not to miss it. We had been searching for that battery for 10 minutes, and that battery was gone. It was gone forever. And as soon as we prayed, then there it was. Now, you could say, well, you just missed the battery, or you may have moved around and you put your foot down in the boat, and the fact that that part was lower caused the battery to slide into it. There are all kinds of explanations you could offer, but the fact remains, we couldn't find the battery. It was probably lost. We all stopped. We closed our eyes and said a prayer, and the instant we opened our eyes, then it was right there. We're in the one place we couldn't have missed it. However, so I, I looked on that as a miracle. However, I did not have a spiritual witness at that time. The Lord didn't say to me that you are now experiencing a miracle. The Lord just put the battery in my path, and it was up to me to interpret what had happened. The reason I tell this story, I know I spent a long time on that story, but I think it's important because... These five men are experiencing the same thing. They run into this, uh, the house of the chief judge, and they've just been told something by the prophet. And when they reach there, uh, they find that what he said was true. He had been murdered. Then they, uh, they faint because they are so overcome by the fact that they know now that, the, that Nephi is a prophet. Now, it's not the five men that I wanted to make this point about. 
the next day, they're accused of having killed him because they faint rather than keeping their, uh, their consciousness. Uh, incidentally, if you're going to faint, as we've learned elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, don't do it around somebody who's, who's also either unconscious or dead, or you will probably be suspected of his murder. This has happened repeatedly now in the Book of Mormon. Uh, but in any case, the five men are released when it comes out that Nephi is the one who said what they would find. And then the controversy arises. Did Nephi send, send someone else to kill this chief judge so that then he could have witnesses that he was a prophet? Did Nephi somehow collaborate in the murder of their head of government? So that, that is where the point comes in, are the people that then would receive the testimony of the five. The five knew. They knew that Nephi said it, and, it, and when they reached the, the home of the chief judge, they knew that there was no time for anybody to have been there. They were the only people who could have found out. They believed that Nephi was a prophet, but everyone else was looking for an excuse to not believe Nephi. So then the choice was up to them. Here was this miracle that had been performed, and yet they had the opportunity and the agency to then interpret those events however they chose. And God, even though he had provided the miracle, did not provide a spiritual witness of the miracle to everybody who witnessed it. They had to interpret it as they chose. Now, Nephi is accused of being confederate with whoever the murderer was. And in order to disprove this, Nephi says, all right, I'll give you one more sign. I'll, I'll, go, I'll take it a level even higher. I will tell you who the murderer is, and I will predict the future of how he will react, something that there's no way I could collaborate in. And then that prediction is carried out. So they, they go to the brother of the chief judge. There's Sizorum, the chief judge, and Siantum, his brother. And they go to his brother, and he says, you know, Nephi has predicted. He'll deny it at first, and then you'll find proof on his body. He has blood on his robe, and then he will admit it, and then he will say that Nephi had no part in it. And according to his word, they go, and all of this comes to pass. So interestingly, at the end of chapter 9, that now there arose a division among the people as we turn the page into chapter 10. In verse 1, insomuch that they divided hither and thither, and thither and went their ways, leaving Nephi alone. So they, there was a controversy. There were those who believed, and they had several reasons to believe. One of the reasons was he had told them about their sins. He had accu accurately revealed their secret sins. Uh, another group of people believed because he knew who the murderer was. Another group of people believed because he prophesied the death of the chief judge. Other people believed because he, uh, because of the testimony of the five witnesses. And those are the reasons to believe alongside, on top of the reasons that Nephi himself gave, which were the, the meaning of a prophet, the fact that he had testified of their wickedness. But the story that I gave about the battery was an answer to the question that for me came up here in chapter 10, Helaman chapter 10, verse one. It came to pass that there arose a division among the people. So they're disagreeing with themselves about whether Nephi is a prophet or not. And my question was, how? How could you disagree that Nephi is a prophet? He has just twice, number one, he has accurately told you about your secret sins. Number two, he has accurately predicted the chief judge's death. Number three, he accurately predicted who the murderer was and the future events about how that murderer would react. So this is unmistakable proof that Nephi is a prophet, and yet there arises a division among the people. So the point that I wanted to make is God will intervene in your life more than you could possibly imagine he's intervening in your life. But what he doesn't do is advertise when he intervenes in your life. You have to be willing to see his hand. And I'm reminded of President Eyring's talk from 
the October 2007 General Conference. It's called Oh, Remember, Remember. And he talks about how he wrote a few lines every day for years, and basically he'd look back over his day and try to pick some way in which he'd seen the, God, the hand of God in his life. And because he chose to see the hand of God, then all of a sudden it was everywhere. As President Eyring put it, as I would cast my mind over the day, I would see evidence of what God had done for one of us that I had not recognized in the busy moments of the day. As that happened, and it happened often, I realized that trying to remember had allowed God to show me what he had done. Well, back to the story of Nephi. After the division arises, Nephi is left alone, and he is cast down. He is discouraged, and he ponders what has been happening. And, he's, and as, as, he, as he's walking home, the manual makes the point that this there comes a revelation to him as he ponders, just as President Eyring made clear. He's pondering the hand of God in his life. And now we have revealed to us yet one more role of a prophet. God says to Nephi, Blessed art thou, Nephi, and, the, and he uses the word twice, unwearyingness. Because thou hast with unwearyingness declared the word which I have given unto thee unto this people, and not feared them, then thou shalt be blessed forever. And he seals upon Nephi his calling and election, and gives Nephi the sealing power. This is a power that has existed elsewhere on the earth with other prophets, and it is the the highest power that God can give to a person. And Nephi now has been told by God, and God says, Thou art Nephi, and I am God. This is, this is God making an oath and saying, I will not fail to keep my oath. Whatever you command to be done will be done. Now, as part of this revelation, Nephi is encouraged to continue to declare with unwearyingness repentance unto this people. Uh, it says in verse 12, It came to pass that when the Lord had spoken these words unto Nephi, he did stop and did not go unto his own house, which is where he was heading, but did return unto the multitudes who were scattered about upon the face of the land and began to declare unto them the word of the Lord which had been spoken unto them concerning their destruction if they did not repent. Now, the point I would make with this is he did this everywhere. He he went through Zarahemla. He went through all the land southward. He went to everyone that he had not spoken with, and wherever he couldn't reach personally, he sent word. And this was before he went home. So God told him that he should keep working, and he immediately changed his course and kept working. This was why he had his calling and election made sure, because he was this kind of a man. But the point I'm getting at is that they still didn't repent. Now, I imagine that if you were a prophet and you were told, hey, interrupt what you're doing, go declare repentance, and, you know, this is, I, the Lord, have spoken it. I am giving you a revelation that you should do this. You might, in your mind, assume that God was going to give you certain blessings if you did. And you'd be very discouraged if you stopped what you were doing, you went and repented, and then nothing happened. And by nothing, I mean uh, it, didn't ha- it didn't seem to have any effect. This must have been so disappointing because he probably Nephi probably felt like if you turn around and go back and keep declaring the word, I know you've already told these people to repent once, but go do it again. He probably felt like, oh, the Lord's promising me that, that I'll have more success this time. And then that didn't happen. And so that's really the point I want to bring up is you may receive a prompting at some point. You may have a church calling at some point, and you believe that it is the Lord's will for you to work. And if it doesn't yield the results that you predicted, that you assumed, then you might think that you did it wrong. There's something wrong with you, or there's something wrong, worse, there's something wrong with God. 
Now, of course, it would have been different if God had said to Nephi, if you turn around right now and continue preaching, even though you're tired and even though your soul is weary, then I will give you success. And then if God didn't do it, then Nephi would have reason to think, wow, what's going on? Maybe I missed a message there, or maybe I didn't do it right, or maybe I can doubt God at this point. But if God did not make that promise and, and Nephi made an assumption, then that is where the discouragement would come from. So to me, it's an encouragement to look at the assumptions that I've made. What has God actually promised me? And what are the promises that I have assumed because I am obeying either promptings or obeying the the commandments or obeying the voice of a prophet? I am being blessed, but am I assuming that I should have been blessed in different ways and therefore ascribing some sort of falseness to God that that doesn't actually exist because God always keeps his word? Now, back in chapter 10, we have two groups of people. There were those people who believed in Nephi as a prophet, and there were those people who believed that he was, or that that hated his message, whether or not they believed he was, the people who already were predisposed to hate him. And the interesting thing is that neither of these groups of people would actually change their behavior. Even those people who believed that Nephi was a prophet, uh, if if you read verse 18, It came to pass that they would not hearken unto his words, and there began to be contentions, insomuch that they were divided against themselves, and began to slay one another with the sword. So what I read from this verse is that the people of Nephi were more interested in disagreeing with each other than they were in humbling themselves before God. Now, the Book of Mormon obviously is a historical work. And so these people are separated from us by centuries and by uh, many thousands of miles and by language and cultural barriers. And so there are some things about which uh, these stories just pertain to them. But when I read this verse, I thought, is there any similarity between what just happened here and our own society today? To me, I felt a very strong echo that a kind of people who would rather be right and fight with each other than humble themselves before God very closely resembles the situation in which our world is today. There are so many contentions. It came to pass that they would not hearken unto his words, and there began to be contentions insomuch that they were divided against themselves. If the prophet speaks, do people then unite? Do they humble themselves? Do they listen? Do they pray? Do they ask God, in what way am I different? Do I dip? Does my comportment? Does my behavior differ from what the prophet just said? And how can I change? God, will you forgive my sins? Will you help me to repent? Or do we say, look what the prophet just said. You're, you're interpreting the way that you're doing your life wrong. Now, maybe I'm alone in this perception, but I do believe that this is an important lesson for our day, that when the prophet speaks, we don't take that as an opportunity to then be right over someone else. We take that as an opportunity for us to humble ourselves before God. It's a very personal matter. It's a very personal process. And this is why I believe just a few short decades later, when Jesus was among the Nephites, one of the first things he would say to them was, it is not my will that there should be con- that men should contend with anger one with another, but that such thing. But it is my will that such things should be done away. That's Third Nephi chapter eleven twenty nine, and in Helaman chapter eleven we read that these contentions that began just people fighting over what Nephi had said, 
they continued until the war was bloody and they were going to destroy each other. The Nephites, this is one of the first examples we have of Nephites fighting amongst themselves to the point of warfare and bloodshed. And Nephi is so distressed by this that he says in verse 4, we're in Helaman 11, 4, O Lord, do not suffer that this people shall be destroyed by the sword, but O Lord, rather let there be a famine in the land to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God, and perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. This reminded me, I mean, this is unmistakably uh, hearkening back to 1 Kings chapter 17. Now in chapter 16, we have the statement that I made earlier, that King Ahab, the king in Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, he did more to offend God than all the kings of Israel before him. And so the first verse in chapter 17 of 1 Kings is, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So a prophet of the Lord says the same thing. Let's, let there be a famine. Now, in the book of Kings, we don't have as many details about what was going on in Elijah's mind. We have to read through the context that he was thinking the same thing that Nephi was thinking, which is, I want the people to repent. There seems to be no other way than for God to do what, he, what Mormon describes in chapter 12 we read, which is, unless God chastens people, they just forget him. There's no real reason to remember God when things are going well. This is the contradiction of what it means to be God. This is, uh, if, you, if you remember, we talked a few weeks ago about, about the word theodicy, and that's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. It's a word of Greek origin, which actually means God and justice, theo and dice or dice, which is justice. And the word literally translated means justifying God. So theodicy is the attempt to explain the, what is called the problem of evil, the existence of evil in the world when God himself is good. So that's what theodicy is. And this chapter 12 of Helaman does a great job of getting us far down the road, which is if God doesn't permit evil, he doesn't allow trials to come upon us, if he doesn't, in a word, chasten his people, then they won't remember him. And as I said, his short-term blessings turn out to be long-term curses. And it's his short-term curses that turn out to be eternal blessings because they cause his people to be stirred up in remembrance towards him. Now, you can extend that a little farther because it's not always the people who are being wicked that are chastened by God. Sometimes extremely righteous people undergo challenges that probably do come from God and not from their own choices, not from the evil choices of others, and not from simply the nature of uh, the world as a fallen world. They actually come from God to test righteous people as well. So you can be chastened even though you may already be doing everything you can to obey God. And God is simply awakening you even more. And you have another opportunity to struggle and learn and rely on him. If you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he was continuously suffering all kinds of privations of body and spirit and society. And if the word chasten didn't have the connotation that you were being punished in some way, then you would say that Jesus Christ was chastened his whole life. He was constantly being put to the test by God from the day he was young until the day he died. And therefore, before you assume, before you conclude that God has abandoned you, that because you listened to a prompting of God and didn't get the blessings that you thought were promised, that you assumed were promised, that God has abandoned you, 
then in your theodicy, in your calculations of why God is or is not righteous, remember that God has to chasten people in order for them to remember him. And even when they remember him, he will continue to test them, to awaken them even further. The Nephites are certainly awakened in chapter 11. The famine, once it extends itself, it, puts, it quickly puts a stop to the war. But eventually, uh, and we don't actually have a, a, a direct account of this happening. What we have is Nephi's prayer describing that it happened. But the Nephites, they purged themselves the way the Lamanites did of all of these Gadianton robbers. And we learn that because Nephi prays and says, God, now remove this famine because they have repented. They have gotten rid of all these, these Gadiantons among them. And he utters this, this psalmic prayer, this multiverse psalmic prayer, which is in verse 10 through verse 16. And it starts every verse with, O Lord, behold this people. O Lord, because of their humility. O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger? There are multiple instances of parallelism in this, in this prayer. And in fact, it again, it parallels the prayer that is found in 1 Kings so three years after Elijah declared this famine would come upon the land, the time has come for the famine to be removed. And in 1 Kings 18, 36 and 37, Elijah says these words, It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that, th- that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. You may remember that this was the culmination of Elijah's duel with the priests of Baal, and this is when the fire consumed the sacrifice, but shortly thereafter the famine was taken away. And in chapter 11 of Helaman, Helaman's prayer is very similar. He's saying, hear my words, O Lord. I'm, I'm thy prophet. I have declared this according to thy word. Bless the people according to thy, their repentance, that they have turned their heart back to thee. And it's for very similar reasons, and it's called upon by a prophet in very similar ways. You would think that Nephi's prayer could be shorter. You would think that uh, God has promised him that whatever he says— will happen. And so all he has to say is, okay, God, you can now turn back on the spigot. And then he would be able to believe that God would just let the rain begin. But remember that even though Nephi was the prophet, he was living this famine right along with everyone else. Elijah went through the same thing. He had to be nourished by God in hiding for three years while so many, while the entire nation of Israel starved and died because of the famine. And Nephi was living the same way. He he had, he probably suffered the privations of hunger and thirst more than anyone because he was sharing of what he had, I would imagine. And so he utters this heartfelt prayer because he and the, the people that he love and those believers have been suffering as well. Incidentally, Nephi's prayer here in Helaman 11 isn't the only place in this week's lesson where we find uh, parallelism. In Helaman chapter 8, uh, just one quick example, this is a beautiful example of parallelism if you don't quite understand what it is yet. Helaman chapter 8, verse 15. When Nephi was talking about the role of a prophet, he talked about Moses raising the brass serpent in the wilderness. And he said, As many as should look upon that serpent should live, even so, as many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit, might live, even unto that life which is eternal. So the serpent is parallel 
to the Son of God, and live is parallel to live. You can see that it, the concept has been repeated, but had, it has been intensified, as Mike Madsen discussed in our special episode on chiasmus. Chiasmus is just a special form of parallelism. This is ancient Hebrew poetry. This is the way that they taught in an oral tradition to make sure that their lessons were remembered by their audiences. So the chapters for today, they actually end the same way they began, which is the people all repent. All of Nephite and Lamanite society seems to be united in righteousness because of the fact that they've remembered God because he chastened them. And then after a very short time, then they start to choose wickedness again. In this particular case, there is an entire group of Gadiant robbers who live in the wilderness and are preying like parasites upon the people who want to do what's right. And they cannot be eradicated. And that's the way chapter 11 ends. And there are a few points I'll make about that, and then we'll discuss chapter 12 again. Uh, first of all, why do you think... I don't, I'm actually not going to make a point. I'm going to give you some questions to ponder. Why do you think Nephite society was so volatile? Meaning, they could be converted to the Lord one year, and then they could let it all go two or three years later, and then they could be converted to the Lord again, as we'll read over the next several lessons. This happens over and over again, that they'll be converted to the Lord, and then they will go back to being wicked in, over the course of not many years. Why do you th- what do you think made the Nephites this way? And secondly, the Gadiantans are described as receiving an increase to their numbers daily. They received additions to their numbers, more dissenters from the Nephites. They received them daily. So their numbers were growing. And my question is, what would make a Nephite, someone who had seen the blessings of God, had seen how God could bless a people who were faithful to him, what could make somebody like that descent unto the Gadiantans and join a group that were murdering, thieving, uh, abducting women and children and carrying them off? What is it that would turn a Nephite into a Gadianton? So with those questions, and you can you can email me your answers to those questions if you like, or you can just think about them. I may, I may remember to talk about them next time. I may not. But those are worth thinking about because it is the attitude of the Nephites who became Gadiantans that made it possible. And so that's what I want you to think about is what was that attitude? What was that mindset that would allow them to change in that way? And do I have any hint? Do I have any trace of that attitude in my own heart? That's really the important question because it was a real phenomenon. These were really faithful people and they, were, they changed to be utterly wicked. And if you don't think it can happen to you, then you have underestimated the power of Satan. It can happen to anyone. If we aren't willing to look and examine our attitudes and find the traces of those wicked attitudes that lead people to such great falls. So finally, we return to chapter 12, and chapter 12 begins with these famous words we know lead us into one of Moroni, or I'm sorry, Mormon's sermons, which is, and thus we see, or thus we can behold, as he says here. Thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. So that's one of the main points of this chapter. And I'm going to read you a verse uh, that, that brings it across a little more forcefully. In Helaman chapter 12, verse 4. So we talked about how uh, blessings would tend to make people forget God. That's verse 2. Verse 3 is, chastening helps people to remember God. Here we are in verse 4. How foolish, how foolish and how vain and how evil and devilish and how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do good are the children of men. Yea, how quick to hearken unto the words of the evil one and to set their hearts 
upon the vain things of the world. The point of this entire chapter is for Mormon to say, men are quick to do evil. You have to remember that you have this sinful nature and you must do everything all the days of your life to fight against it. I recently conducted an experiment. I asked a question on Facebook just to see what people would answer. I wrote, are people basically good or are people basically bad? Now, the, the answers came back. I, I, don't, I have to admit, my, it wasn't a scientific poll and I don't know that I phrased the question fairly, but my goal was to know how people perceive human nature. Because the Book of Mormon is very clear on what human nature is, it is wicked. And this, this chapter is as clear as anywhere else, but one, one other place would be in Mosiah chapter 3, King Benjamin's address, when he talks about the fact that the natural man is an enemy to God. Paul made the same point in his epistles, that we cannot trust ourselves. Mormon says that how quick to be, in verse 5 now continuing, how quick to be lifted up in pride, yea, how quick to boast and do all manner of that which is iniquity, how slow are they to remember the Lord their God and to give ear to his counsels, yea, how slow to walk in wisdom's paths. So the voice of the scriptures is pretty unified in saying that people have a sinful nature. This is a nature which must be combated. It needs every appeal to conscience, to the Holy Spirit, to the words of God and the prophets and the scriptures and the counsel of parents and anyone else who can encourage us. We have to surround ourselves with the good things of life. We have to make covenants because if we don't do all of these things, then our very nature will overtake us and our wickedness will overcome us. As, as Mormon goes on to teach, men are less than the dust of the earth because we don't listen to God. This is a very important and very profound observation that alone men are unique. Men and women are unique among all of God's creations that we don't obey God. Every single other one of God's creations, and he outlines them here, animals, earth, water, they all listen to God and they move and they act according to his voice, according to his will, and according to his word. There is no other creation of God that disobeys him other than man. And therefore, pride is the least justified of all human emotions. The causes that we have to have pride don't exist. We think that we have things to be prideful about, but every gift or attribute that we might regard as a justification for our pride is actually a gift of God. And as Mormon makes plain here in chapter 12, we have to look up to regard the dust of the earth because in the in the hierarchy of things, of the holiness of things, because the dust of the earth obeys God at all times, and we simply do not. And Mormon ends his sermon with this impassioned plea, may God grant, in verse 24, in his great fullness, that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. I would, verse 25, that all men might be saved, but we read that in the great and last day, there are some who shall be cast out, yea, who shall be cast off from the presence of the Lord. So the, the message is twofold. One, that we must exercise all of our faith, all of our humility to bring the gift, the marvelous gift of repentance and grace about in our own lives. And secondly, that not everyone will be saved. Or another way of saying this is that at some point, it will be too late to change. And if you'll forgive me for skipping forward a couple of verses again, in Helaman chapter 14, verse 29, this is during the sermon of Samuel the Lamanite. 
And he explains the reason why angels appear and prophets, there are prophets to give messages and signs so that people can do away with their unbelief. He explains the reason for all these things. And uh, Samuel says, to this, this to the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved and that whosoever will not believe, a righteous judgment might come upon them. And also, if they are condemned, they bring upon themselves their own condemnation. So he sort of sums up the, the plan of salvation right there, which is that God wants those people who will believe to have claim upon his mercy. And he wants those who choose not to believe to have every opportunity to refuse those blessings that they, might not have, that they otherwise might have had. And it will be, at one point, too late for all of us. And I don't know whether that cutoff point is at death or beyond death. There seems to be some indication that the work of salvation continues beyond the grave. That's certainly part of the gospel. Uh, there are indications in the Book of Mormon that after this day of life comes the night wherein can, there can be no labor performed. But one thing is certainly true, and that is all of us listening to this podcast, all of us who are alive today, it is not too late for us. Therefore, it is a supreme message of love from the prophets to us. This is the work of a prophet to declare the mind of God that all of us should humble ourselves before him and repent and change whatever it is in our attitude that would cause a Nephite to become a Gadianton. Change whatever it is that would reward the wicked for their money or their power and punish the righteous for their righteousness. Change the lack of Kedushah and of Tzedakah in our society and bring those things about. Resist that nature within us that is so easily enticed by sin and build upon the rock of Jesus Christ, which Helaman taught his sons, which means that we call upon Christ and ask for his grace, not only to save us at the last day, but to support us in our daily struggle against all of these things. And he will transform us. He will make our lives easier. He will make the joy apparent in following him. He will cause the making of correct choices to be rewarded by the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit. He will heal the wickedness of our souls the way that he healed the eyes of the blind and the legs of the lame. That is who Christ is. That is his role in the plan of salvation. And the role of prophets is to declare that word unto us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.